Okay, on that happy note, good evening. We're up to good evening. nothing about Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, although he and Yechezkel have something in common, so it's 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 a good segue in, in that in that way. So the book of Yechezkel is actually divided in two very nicely even halves, at least the way we divide the chapters, where chapters one through twenty-four are dreadful. There's almost nothing positive in there at all. It's some of the most miserable, harsh diatribes you will ever find. He won up to all of his predecessors. I don't even think I spoke about it. You know, the typical prophetic way, if you really want to condemn the people of Israel, what you say is, you're as bad as Sodom. Standard prophetic condemnation. Isaiah uses it. Other prophets use it as well. Amos is very high on that concept, for better or for worse. Yechezkel tops everybody by saying, you guys are worse than Sodom. He's the only prophet who comes along and and one-ups all of his predecessors. Or the prophet Isaiah will talk about this idea of the refining process. We spoke about all these things back in whatever, February, March, where the idea is that the people of Israel need to be pure. The best way to do that is to repent, everybody to be righteous. If they don't repent, then there needs to be a fire under the pot and all the dross will float to the top. God will skim it off and then poof, pure silver. So the prophet Ezekiel, how do you one-up that? He says, you guys are all dross. There's no silver in there. Right? So that's his way of, of condemning the people. So 24 chapters, pretty much, it's all that. With very little silver lining, besides little shards of it here and there. Then there are eight chapters, 25 through 32, where he condemns other nations that are also going to go get clobbered by the Babylonians, which at least has some redemptive quality to Israel, although honestly minuscule, and it's really not about Israel, it's about God, and God hates evil. And then chapter 33 is the climax of all that, where the temple is destroyed, the community learns about it. We already quoted this excerpt previously in source number one, but let's look at it again. In the twelfth year of our exile, on the fifth day of the tenth month, a fugitive came to me from Jerusalem and reported, the city has fallen. In Hebrew again, just two words, ukitahair. Now the hand of the Lord had come upon me the evening before the fugitive arrived, and he opened my mouth before he came to me in the morning. Thus my mouth was opened, and I was no longer speechless. In other words, there's no mourning here. In fact, as we discussed in chapter 24, God prohibited Ezekiel and the people from mourning, because this is God's book. God mourns, God is in exile, he's the one who's miserable, and when God is the player, nobody else has any business having any feelings at all. Ezekiel is the priest prophet that we talked about with no emotions at all during service. It doesn't mean that he has no emotions, but he's not allowed to show them or express them or do anything that resembles human behavior in this book. And once the temple is destroyed, something very magical happens in our book, which is suddenly it becomes really nice and happy. There's this absolute turnaround where suddenly the prophet Ezekiel, who has done nothing other than bash the people and tell them how absolutely, purely horrible they've always been, suddenly comes around and says, and now there's going to be a restoration. And for him to say that after all of this, hats off to him. It's it's amazing how he just turned the the entire thing around. Chapter 34, he condemns the leaders of Israel for their bad leadership. 35, he talks about how the enemies of Israel will fall. And then we have the Ezekiel version of redemption for the remainder of the book, chapters 36 through 48. One thing that Ezekiel slides in, and we mentioned very briefly last week, is that there's a chance for repentance. In fact, that's what he would like. He would love it if the people would repent on their own. God would immediately forget all of the clouds from before, whether the people's own sins or the earlier generation sins. That would be the way to go. Unfortunately, that's not the likely scenario in our book. The assumption of the book is that the people will not repent. 
God is going to have to forcibly redeem them. That's what we talked about last time. It's going to hurt, but at least then we'll be redeemed. We'll be back in our land. We'll feel terrible about the whole thing. And we will finally repent. And it doesn't even sound like it's Israel's repentance to be done. It sounds like God is going to give Israel a heart transplant. Because Israel's heart is of stone, is so dead, that it needs to be yanked out. God will put in a fresh heart, and then finally we will get it right. Chapter 36 is an extension of what we talked about last time. It's actually a continuation from chapter 20, but now we're in chapter 36. Source number two. Say to the house of Israel, Thus said the Lord God, Not for your sake I will act, O house of Israel, but for my, for my holy name, which you have caused to be profaned among the nations to which you have come. In other words, I'm not redeeming you because you're any good. I'm redeeming you because I have to. And we spoke a lot about that last time. My name is desecrated when the people of Israel are in exile and when they are suffering. So I must make you come back. Verse 23. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, among whom you have caused it to be profaned. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I manifest my holiness before their eyes through you. I'm not doing this for you. I'm not doing this because redemption has to do with the people of Israel. I'm doing it because redemption has to do with God. And if I redeem Israel, then all the nations will say, wow, God is still with Israel. And that makes God look good. So that's what the redemption in the book of Ezekiel is all about. It's very driven by God's reputation, and it is very not driven by Israel's behavior or reputation. Yeah. Oh, we don't look at it all in this book. Israel has been terribly sinful, and Ezekiel exaggerates it literally to the full degree. He says that 100% of you have been 100% bad 100% of the time, always, forever. Okay, so that's not true. There have been some good people. There have even been some good generations along the way. But that's Ezekiel's point. Ezekiel's point is that it's not about Israel's deserving a redemption here. We've been awful. That desecrates God's name. There's no question about that. God needs us to be righteous, because that's what makes his reputation good. We've been stubborn for thousands of years. So God now is forcibly redeeming the people of Israel and is going to make us repent. So then we'll finally be able to do our job that we are supposed to do in this world. Jerry, did you get the source sheet? Okay, great. Okay. So Barry, your point is well taken. That's exactly what the pain of this book is that God was hoping that the people of Israel would... Israel has a necessary role to play for God's reputation as far as biblical theology is concerned. And the book of Ezekiel jumps on that more than any other book that were necessary. In other words, other books talk about Israel's importance in a mutual covenant. Right Here, it's not about an importance of a mutual covenant. Here, it's about God's reputation. God's reputation has been terribly damaged by Israel's behavior and also by her exile. So God needs to redeem us and make us repent so that we'll finally get it right. So you're, you're exactly right. It's, it's unusual. As I mentioned at the very beginning, I'll keep saying this, I'm sure I'll tie it all together at the end. The book of Ezekiel is not hard to understand, for the most part. There are parts that are impossible to understand. But the rest of it is perfectly consistent, coherent. I think we can all pick it up and pretty much read it in whatever language we're comfortable reading it in and get at least most of what he's driving at. What makes it so shocking is that it is so wildly different from the other 23 books in the Bible. Right? So in general, with the survey course, this is what I always try to do. I always try to boil down, okay, what makes this book stand out? Here I don't even need to try. Right? Here it's so radically different that it's shocking. As I mentioned at the outset, and I'm sure I'll summarize this at the end of tonight, the sages considered seriously banning this book 
Because it's not just different, it's dangerously different from the other books. So that's, that's what we're going to drive toward tonight. But first we just have to appreciate how different this vision of redemption is. Verse 24. I will take you from among the nations and gather you from all the countries and I will bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your fetishes. Exactly what Barry was just talking about. In other words, they still have those fetishes down to the wild. The only thing I would disagree is that Barry was too nice. He said that it's the Israelites almost are idolatrous. No, no, no. Ezekiel would just delete the word almost. No, they, they, they worship idols. They're terrible. They're, they're idolaters. And God is pained by all of that. So he's going to... But it goes back to last week's conversation. The prophets have different pictures of whether the people of Israel need to repent to warrant redemption. Most prophets take the stand that Israel has to do something about it. Ezekiel, it's the exact opposite. You see it with your own eyes here. I'm going to make you, I'm going to forcibly redeem you, bring you back to your land, and then I will purify you and get rid of your idols. It's not that Israel got rid of their idols for themselves. They didn't. Verse 26, And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit into you. I will remove the heart of stone from your body and give you a heart of flesh. It goes back to chapter 11. And I will put my spirit into you. Thus I will cause you to follow my laws and faithfully to observe my rules. Then shall you dwell in the land which I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This last verse sounds so normal. I have to just give you a little bit of an appreciation about how abnormal it is in this book. Right? When you hear about things like, I'm going to give you the land of Israel, which I promised your, your ancestors, you know, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Okay, we've been hearing about that since the very beginning, right? God has promised the ancestors the land in Breshit. That's the running theme. In our book, the prophet Ezekiel has been deliberately omitting mention of the ancestors, omitting Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. He always starts the national history in Egypt. And he does that because he wants to cut them off from their ancestors, because they were too good. If Ezekiel's point is that you're 100% bad 100% of the time, well, you can't throw Abraham and Sarah under the bus. Right? So what he does is he just doesn't mention them. Right? He never mentions the Avot in the negative chapters, or the Imahot. He can't. They compromise the message that he, the scathing message that he's trying to give. So when he says this here, again, if you're in any other biblical book, you just kind of read on. There's nothing more to talk about here. Okay, our ancestral homeland. Yeah, that's what we always call it. But in this book, this is a revolution that Ezekiel mentions it, because now we're in the redemption side. Now, God reminds us, oh, the God-Israel relationship is eternal. God swore to the ancestors, and here we see it. Right? We actually get to see the eternality of the covenant right over here. Okay. So chapter 36, which picks up from chapter 20, obviously has a far more positive tone. And it lets the people of Israel know that I'm, God is saying, I'm going to redeem you whether you are, you are worthy or not. We then get to chapter 37, which is easily one of the most celebrated prophecies of redemption throughout all of Tanakh, not just in this book. This is the classic vision of the dry bones. I think, I think most people are familiar with it because it is that celebrated. The logic is that Ezekiel is standing there looking at a bunch of bones. And God is like, hey, Ezekiel, do you think I could bring these to life? And Ezekiel says, you're God, you can do whatever you want, but I have no idea what you're going to do. And in the prophecy, the ground starts to shake, the bones kind of come together, the ankle bone is connected to the foot bone. I think that song is inspired by this by, by this vision on top of everything else. And before you know it, they are fully assembled Lego style, but they're still dead. And then to add to the drama, God says, hey, Ezekiel, do you think I could bring these bones to life? 
Ezekiel says again, you're God. You, you can do anything. And then all of a sudden, poof, they all come to life and they get up. There's this wonderful passage in the Talmud. And here's the rabbis of the Talmud have a difficult time working with metaphor. Even though they understand metaphor way fine. But, but they often take things hyper-literally. That's the Midrashic style. So here, most sages actually think that if you and I were to take a time machine back, they don't quite phrase it this way, but that's what they mean. If, if we were to take a time machine back and go to stand next to Ezekiel, we actually would see real bones really coming together and really coming to life, and we would be able to get these people's autograph. <laughs> right? If we so desired. That's what we would actually see with our own eyes in a waking state. And one rabbi there, I think it's Rabbi Yehoshua ben Betera, says, I'm descendants of those people, and here's a pair of tefillin that they bequeathed unto me. I love that stuff. Right? It's great. There are views in the Talmud already, though, that no, 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 no. If we were to take a time machine back, we would not see anything. We would see Ezekiel in a prophetic trance. And this is a metaphor. In other words, no real bones came to life on that day. What happens is God is saying, what you're seeing, Ezekiel, in your vision is what the people of Israel are like. We look like we're dead. And that means that it's over. And it's going to take a colossal miracle of the first rank to bring the people of Israel back. Right? It's a mashal, it's a metaphor. There, there is no, we would not see any bones coming back to life. Not that God couldn't handle that also. That's not what actually happened on that day. Ezekiel was getting a vision to describe the radical nature of how incredible this redemption was going to be. Because nobody in Israel, meaning none of the Jews, thought that they would ever come back. They really did think that the God-Israel relationship was over. Megan. Uh, well, that's so beautiful because it's much more personal uh, that we could feel that God would redeem us as opposed to what we would see that Ezekiel saw, you know, then. It's not then. It's constant. For us, each one of us. You're right. Your point is actually when we learn Tanakh, we must listen to what you are saying. We should always listen to what you are saying. But particularly on this point, what we're hearing is meaning that's eternal. I, I, the only thing I would disagree with you is that if this happened in real life, if this happened in a waking state, we would still be reading it the same way that you just said. In other words, we're not interested in, wow, God did a cool trick. God can do very cool tricks. What matters still is exactly the same message, which is that the people... The, the, the metaphor is still there. Even if real people came back to life on that day, God is still using them as an analogy to the people of Israel. But most medieval commentaries understand very well that if we took a time machine back, we would not actually see it. We would see only what you're saying, that there's an image that's going on over here. So then God explains what the point of all of this is in source number three. And he said to me, O oh mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up our hope is gone. We are doomed. Because this is exactly what the people of Israel thought. That our hopes are gone. We're finished. It's time to assimilate and become Babylonians. Prophesy, therefore, and say to them, Thus said the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and lift you out of the graves, O my people, and bring you to the land of Israel. Again, this is not literally talking about a resurrection here. Right? What he's saying is, Dear people of Israel who are in the Babylonian exile, who are alive, you feel as though you are dead. You feel as though the God-Israel relationship is over. You feel that all hope is gone. We're doomed. I'm going to open your graves. Not literally, because they're alive. These are the people who are going to walk back with backpacks on. Whatever they used in, in, five, you know, in 586 BCE. 
You shall know, O my people, that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and lifted you out of your graves. I will put my breath into you and you shall live again, and I will set you upon your own soil. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and have acted, declares the Lord. I mean, it's really a, just a truly fabulous prophecy which has captured the imagination of 2,500 plus years worth of Jews. As I mentioned at the very outset, I'll mention it again, this only works in the, in the Hebrew. I'm going to read the Pasuk Yud Aleph, you know, still in the same source. Elai, ben Adam. So God said unto me, O mortal, these bones represent the people of Israel. Our bones are dried out. And our hope is lost. As I mentioned at the very outset, I'll mention it here again. The composers of the Hatikva drove, drew from this. Right? The, the Jews back then were saying, We've lost our hope. So, of course, the big, powerful moment in the song is, We haven't lost our hope. Here we are 2,500 years plus, 2,600 years after this incredible vision. We're still here. We've always held on to our hope. And that's how we have survived. So it's a miraculous song. But, of course, if you appreciate the roots of that line, you, you really get it. You, you understand why they drew from this magnificent prophecy. There's nothing like it. Okay, chapters 38 and 39 are, are called in rabbinic literature, they're called the Wars of Gog and Magog. It's interesting. I don't, sometimes the sages say things and it makes sense. Like, for example, the chapter 1, this incredible vision that Ezekiel keeps getting in chapter 1 and 3 and 8 and 43, 10 also. It's all over the place. We call it in rabbinic literature, Maseh HaMerkava, the celestial chariot. There's nowhere in the text that actually refers to the vision as such. There's a chariot going on, but it's not called the Maseh Merkava in, in, in that particular thing. We, we can deduce that that's what's, what's happening over there. There are else, other places in Tanakh, elsewhere in the Bible, where God's angelic cohort is referred to as a Merkava or a Rechev, a chariot. So the idea is of the divine power and God is being transported. So that one makes sense. Here, it's called the War of Gog and Magog, whereas in the biblical text, it's a king whose name is Gog, who lives in a place called Magog. It's not a battle between Gog and some other guy named Magog. So I don't know how that exactly happened, but all the same, we follow rabbinic literature's terminology. We call it the War of Gog and Magog. The logic of it is that, and this is the crazy part, again, the idea of Israel having enemies and wars and God swooping in and saving the day, that's normal. There's plenty of biblical prophecies like that. There's plenty of real life like that. Sometimes we need God to swoop in just a little bit more. But in the meantime, we have, you know, we have, that's a normal biblical occurrence. What's not normal about Ezekiel is that this war happens after the redemption. Now, here we are, we're back in our land, we're purified, we have a new heart now, we're all righteous, the bones have come back to life, everybody comes back, we're living in peace. That's when we normally say in Tanakh, and now we live happily ever after for all time. Right? That's, we're, we're done. We made it. Whereas in the Gogumagog visions in chapters 38 and 39, it's not just because those chapters come after. It's amply clear that after Israel is redeemed and living in peace and everybody's back and everything is good, then this international coalition is going to come and attack Israel. And their goal, by the way, isn't even that they hate Jews. They just want stuff. It's a pure property thing. They just want Israel's dwelling in peace, had a great redemption, is doing very well. Time to attack to get their stuff. Yeah, Beverly? Um, I may be being a little bit concrete, but I'm a little confused about the timeline. Some of this prophecy is in the moment, some is before, some is after. 
He's experiencing these are prophecies of what's going to happen. So he always he always gets the prophecy before things happen. In these cases, yes. I and mean, does he share them with the people? Yes. Always. Presu- I would say presumably, either orally or in writing. Once he's written it down as a scroll, these scrolls were disseminated. So the goal is to let the people know this is what is going to happen. So he tells them the Beit HaMikdash is going to be destroyed. Correct. And then it's destroyed. Right. And then he tells them they'll be rebuilt. And then they're redeemed. Correct. Well, they, the, his generation didn't live to see that redemption. But he told them... He told them that it's anyway. imminent. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. It's confusing because usually prophecy is between a prophet and a person, not a group of people. Some and some. Some and some. You're you're not wrong. There are plenty of times that it is an individual, but there are plenty of times that it's nation also, mm-hmm. or sometimes it's a prophet talking to the king about the nation. Mm-hmm. But it's always in the moment. It's always current. The ones that we discussed, you're you're right for the most part. Isaiah, and Jeremiah were were involved in politics, so to speak. They were trying to influence kings to make decisions now. Right? They also have futuristic prophecies, but there's a lot of now. Ezekiel is not talking to any Babylonian kings, and there are no Jewish kings. Right? We don't have a king right now. He's talking to the people about what will happen in Israel's future, that Israel does have a future. So correct. His prophecies of redemption, he's not trying to make redemption happen now. He's trying to say this surely will happen. So you're right. And it's more, just to, just to follow with what you're saying, it's much more fatalistic. He's not even telling them, we need to do A, B, and C in order to make this happen. This will happen, it's going to happen soon, and because God needs it. Okay. So this prophecy is unusual in that the attack happens after the redemption is done. It's, it's talking about not happily ever after. So the way it works is they attack, God swoops in, saves the day, clobbers the bad guys, and now finally things are good. So commentators really scramble. Rambam uses this and several other examples, which, you know, bless him, to demonstrate that because the prophets themselves conflict, we won't really know the order of the Messianic era until we're in it. And then we'll know. (laughs) We'll then know the right model. But it's impossible to predict from the prophecies, this is the way it's going to happen for sure. That, That we will never be able to tell. We know that there will be a redemption, but we don't know how exactly it's going to go about happening, whether it will be pleasant or really violent, whether it's going to take rede- repentance on our part or not. There are several things that we really cannot tell. But the prophet Ezekiel has to frame the redemption this way because the mistake and why everybody's like, oh my goodness, there's such a contradiction. There's no contradiction at all. In the book of Isaiah, going back to what Beverly was talking about, there, once there's a redemption, that's the happily ever after part. right? That's the normal model of what redemption looks like. Why is that the normal model? Because who's getting redeemed? Who's the star of the show in the redemption? In the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah? The people of Israel. Right? And with them, the world. Right? It's always, it's always universalistic. It's not just about us, that's for sure. We care very much about the rest of the world following suit and having full redemption. But it's about human-centered redemption. When there's a human-centered redemption, once the Jews are back in their land and living righteously and all the other people are getting inspired, that's the world peace thing that we all crave and long for. Our book isn't about the people of Israel. Our book is about God. God is the one who is in exile. So if the people of Israel are back in their land, that's a stepping stone to the redemption that God needs. But as long as there's wicked people anywhere, God isn't redeemed. It's a disaster. So the way our prophecies are lined up, first God is going to forcibly bring Israel back and make Israel repent. 
Okay, check. That's, 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 that's one thing on the God checklist. But now there's still other bad people. So we have to get rid of the bad people. Once those bad people are gone, now there's no human evil. Now God's name is sanctified in the world. Going back to Barry's point, as long as Israel's sinning or idolatrous or betraying the covenant, then God's name is desecrated. But if other people are wicked, God's name is desecrated too. And Israel plays no special role in that equation. God needs all of humanity to be good. And this brings us to the kicker of the whole uh, of how Ezekiel works on t- in terms of this. Source number four. After God smites down all the bad guys of Gog and Magog, I will punish him with pestilence and with bloodshed. I will pour torrential rain, hailstones, and sulfurous fire upon him and his hordes and the many people with him. Thus I will manifest my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the sight of many nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. It's all about God sanctifying his own name here. It has very little to do with Israel. God is not even saving Israel because he loves Israel or because of the patriarchal covenant or any of the things that we would expect. God will save Israel because God needs to defeat the wicked people. Yeah, Evelyn? It sure does. And and in a big way. You're you're very right. In fact, you're so right. In, in, in this particular case, the bad guys, the paro of our book, are any wicked people who desecrate God's name. So earlier we saw how Israel is a paro sometimes. Right? Here it's other people. Right? Any wicked person is the paro who needs to be defeated by God, and God sure does. So your observation is great. Here again we need to look at the Hebrew to appreciate one other thing, and right away you'll, you'll, you'll hear it, right? In verse 23... Right, pasuk kaf gimel in this Hebrew is v'hitkadilti v'kadishti v'nodati le'negoyim. Okay, what is what prayer came from this passage? The kadish, right? The kadish. It's not an accident that the, that the kadish derives from the book of Yechezkel. As you know, the sages composed prayers. They didn't just use biblical passages. They always reworked biblical passages and made a nice little hodgepodge of different things based on the spirit that they were trying to get across. The Kaddish comes from the book of Ezekiel. It comes from what we just read, right? We have Vikadilti, Vikadishti, the first two first two words. And even, I didn't make a big deal about it at the time, but in source two, if you just look at verse 23 there, I will sanctify my great name, right? Vikidashti at Shemi HaGadol, that's also. That's Yehoshimei Rabban Varach, right? That, that, these are the core tenets of the Kaddish. One of the most popular misconceptions in Judaism, probably, if you ask a hundred Jews on the street or in synagogue, what is the, why was the Kaddish written? So what would most people say, even though they're going to be wrong here? They would say that it was composed as a mourner's prayer. It was not composed as a mourner's prayer. It was a prayer long, long, long before any mourner ever used it as a thing to say in memory of their parents. Right? It became a mourner's prayer a thousand or so years after that, and since then it's become quite rooted in that sense. And I imagine that most people, even if they're not that religiously connected, the Kaddish is something that really connects them because they're obviously connecting to their parents or to other very dear relatives. Yeah, very. Uh, it's a magnificent prayer. It's a prayer of hope, uh, the Kaddish. I mean, we don't look at it like that necessarily, but that's, uh, that's what they say. And so it leads you into the redemption. Correct. We are praying. That's what the Kaddish is. The Kaddish is a prayer for redemption. And why do we want the redemption so badly in the Kaddish? 
because God's name is desecrated. God is in exile. And we're not saying, God, please bring the Mashiach because we're suffering in exile. It's not a prayer for the people of Israel. The people of Israel come together in communities and pray for God to bring redemption because we want God's great name to be glorified. Right? That's the prayer. It started off like that. And again, the, the link to mourners, I mean, there's, there's something when somebody's really down and out and feeling far from God, there's something very beautiful about coming back into a religious relationship with God during a period of deep mourning through this prayer. But it starts off completely as God is in exile. And God's name is desecrated when we are in exile. So God, please redeem us. Right? Speedily in our days. We're praying, we're, we're praying for it right now. Because because God, we want your name to be sanctified. And that's why the prayer is taken from the book of Yechezkel, from Ezekiel. Because that's what the whole book is about. Right? You, can, you can appreciate the, magni- the magnificence of the Kaddish when you learn this book that, we're, that we've been doing together. You understand? That's what the whole book is about. God is the one who's in exile. God is suffering. God needs to be redeemed. And God's name is greatly desecrated when there is exile. And so we pray for the redemption so that God will come back. And all the formulations derive right from here. A passage in the Talmud captures the, captures the, the oomph of what the Kaddish is supposed to be all about in source number five. Right at the beginning of the whole Talmud altogether in Brachot, 3a, right? Rabbi Yosei entered into one of the ruins of Jerusalem to pray. This is after the second, you know, the destruction of the second temple, of course. Elijah appeared. He asked me, what did you hear in this ruin? I replied, I heard a divine voice cooing like a dove and saying, woe to the children on account of whose sins I destroyed my house and burned my temple and exiled them among the nations of the world. He said to me, not only in this moment alone does it so exclaim, but three times it, each day it says this. So the first thing he says is, you know, woe unto Israel for sinning and ca- causing the destruction. And more than that, says Elijah, whenever the Israelites go into the synagogues and schoolhouses and respond, may his great name be blessed, Yehei Shemei Rabbah Mevarach, or here it's actually Yehei Shemo Hagadol Mevarach, it's the Hebrew form, form of that. God shakes his head and says... Happy is the king who is thus praised in this house. Woe to the father who had to banish his children. Woe to the children who had to be banished from the table of their father. This really captures what the Kaddish is about. God is heartbroken. God is furious at Israel for bringing about the destruction in the first place. But God loves his children and very much wants to bring them back. So this passage in the Talmud, it could have been the book of Ezekiel, right? The first half of the book is how Israel deserved it and God is furious about it. And the second half is about how God is distraught, really wants to come back. So he's going to redeem Israel in order to be able to come back. So the Kaddish has to draw from this book because there's no other book like it. There's no other book where you have divine emotions in play. Yeah, sorry. What's interesting is, and it's almost dangerous, is that you're suggesting that not only is God, we've always thought of God as being totally omnipotent, and now what we're suggesting is that God needs us as much as we need him. Absolutely. Yeah, so so it goes back to something we talked about two weeks ago, so I'll bring that back up to, to play. Never take prophetic statements like this as systematic theology. In other words, the God of the prophets is not the God of the philosophers. Right? Even that's one God. Right? The God of the prophets is a vivid, living personality. 
right? Complete with emotions, complete with testing people, complete with ups and downs, complete with a learning process. That's the God of the prophets. Then there's a God of the theologians and philosophers, which is God is unchanging and has no emotions at all, and these are all metaphors, right? All the stuff that you're saying. So I don't know is objectively true. I, how am I supposed to? I can't resolve arguments of that sort. So we talked about how Rambam was necessary in Jewish history to make sure that we didn't take these passages too literally. Look, here it's more than that. Not only is God heartbroken, but he's nodding his head. <laughs> right in the Talmudic passage that we just read, Rambam would have a fit if anybody took that literally. Rightly so. Both, but but both anthropomorphism, which is which Rambam said it was worse than idolatry, but the snazzier word is anthropopathism, which is ascribing human emotions to God. Rambam would say if you take that literally, you have the wrong God concept. You might believe in one God, you might believe in the God of the Torah, but you just don't get it. You're, you have it wrong. You don't believe in the true God. Right? So everything that you're saying is correct. Rambam was necessary to make a very strong dogmatic attack against taking any of these passages too literally. That said, Rav Hirsch came back, and many others agreed with Rav Hirsch long before him, that if we just make these into metaphors and don't listen to what the words are saying, then we miss what the prophets are trying to do, which is to deeply connect us with God on this emotional plane. So I'm not making any doctrinal statements because you can't. You can't quote a prophet and say, Rambam, Rambam knew these passages too. He just says, don't take them literally. So if her says, okay, don't take them too literally, but listen to what they're saying. So I'm talking so, about... So we'll take them moderately seriously. We take them extremely seriously, not necessarily literally. Right? Now, I don't, I don't know how God feels. And it's not a question that you and I can answer, obviously. It's not a question that Ezekiel can answer. But Ezekiel is describing something that's very vivid and very real. Okay, so once we understand that God is the one who's in exile and God needs to be redeemed, so the batting order is simple. God has to forcibly redeem the people of Israel against their will if need be, force us to repent if need be. It would be nice if we repented on our own, as far as the book of Ezekiel is concerned, but if it doesn't happen, God is going to do this anyway. It's going to be this cataclysmic, dry bones coming back to life situation. Then there will be a war, because there still will be human evil, and then God will crush them. Once they're done, now humanity is positioned properly. Israel's in its land again. The people of the world are nice. So we're in a good place. Now we need the temple because God is still homeless. And that's what chapters 40 through 48 in the book are all about. Chapters 40 through 48 bring us to this incredible visionary experience of Ezekiel where God or an angel takes Ezekiel on a virtual tour of the future temple. Just to summarize a 900-year debate in a paragraph, do that, I do that a lot, but, but, but particularly here. We actually discussed this more thoroughly back in the book of Isaiah, so I'm just going to review this principle. Our commentators are at loggerheads over what temple is Ezekiel describing. Here are your multiple choice tests, right? It's not the first one because that's already destroyed. It sounds like he should be des- describing the second temple because, of course, that he's living shortly before the second temple is going to be rebuilt. The bad news for that view is most of these prophecies did not occur then. There's no reason to think that the second temple even looked like his visionary picture. right? So that led a whole slew of commentators to say, well, he must be talking about the third temple, meaning the one that you and I are waiting to be rebuilt speedily in our days. right? That It can't be the second temple because it wasn't fulfilled. Now, the downside of the third temple thing is a bunch of downsides. One of them being that Ezekiel is expecting to actually physically go back and preside over the rebuilding. And he's talking to the people, his audience in Babylonia there in 586 or so BCE, and he's saying, we're going to go back together. So poor Radak, who's really caught in this, says, oh, it means that in the resurrection, in the Messianic era, they will come back. 
and he really ponders how to deal with that. It's a very tough problem. The reality is, and this goes back to Malbim's principle that we discussed in Isaiah, is that prophecy doesn't predict what will happen. It predicts what should happen, what the potential, the potential is there. So what Ezekiel was actually prophesying was the last temple. And the last temple should have been the second one. In other words, the ideal world scenario would be he and his peers would go back shortly after these prophecies, rebuild the temple, Mashiach would be here, and the second temple would still be on Temple Mount right now. That's not the way it worked out, right, at all. That's the way it should have worked out. Since it didn't work out that way, so now he's describing the third temple, right? But initially, he was certainly not talking about the third temple. He was talking about the second one because that's what should have happened. We already talked about this neat point back in the first week, but let's look at it again in source six. In the 25th year of our exile, the 14th year after the city had fallen, at the beginning of the year, the 10th day of the month, on that very day, the hand of the Lord came upon me. He brought me there, meaning to Jerusalem. He brought me in visions of God to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which there seemed to be the outline of a city on the south. And then this angel shows up and gives him this incredible architectural tour of the future temple, which is not physically standing. You know, it's in the Jerusalem on high. It's a visionary what the second te- or what this temple will look like, and the point is that it should be brought into the historical reality. That's the part that didn't quite work out as nicely as it should have worked out. We mentioned back in week one when we talked about Ezekiel as a, a priest prophet that this is exactly twenty years after his first prophecy. So if in fact he began to prophesy at age thirty, that would make him fifty now, and this is his last prophecy in the book. So that would mean that his priestly ages of 30 to 50, when he should have been serving in the temple in Jerusalem, have been completely morphed into this prophetic career that he has. It's a 20-year standing career. So for three chapters, this is where if you are an architect student or just a student of the ancient Near East, and specifically ancient Near Eastern architecture, some of those terms make a lot of sense. If you don't know the technical terminology, I don't. Most scholars don't know a lot of them either, but at least you know looked at a lot of drawings to try to get some picture of what it might kind of look like, and when the temple is rebuilt, I'm sure it'll look very grand indeed. But that's what the first three chapters in the sequence are. Chapters 40, 41, 42 are just, here's what it's going to look like. Here are the dimensions. It's a visionary experience of the future temple. And once the temple is built, and Ezekiel sees it, then we have really the climax of all of this in source number seven. Then he led me to a gate. The he here is that angel that's been giving him this tour. The gate that faced east. And there, coming from the east with a roar like the roar of mighty waters, was the presence of the God of Israel. And the earth was lit up by his presence. Now God himself is able to return. The vision was like the vision I had seen when I came to destroy the city, the very same vision that I had seen by the Chabar Canal. Forthwith I fell on my face. The presence of the Lord entered the temple by the gate that faced eastward. It's a, this is the redemption. right? Ezekiel here is envisioning what redemption in the book of Ezekiel is. Temple is rebuilt, and now God can come home. Right? That's what this book is all about. This is the moment that we've all been waiting for. And once God is there, then God takes over and gives Ezekiel laws about how to dedicate the temple, about the laws of the priesthood, all kinds of things. We discussed at the very beginning, in week one, this is week three, that what, that's not supposed to happen. According to the sages of the Talmud, God does not reveal any laws to any post-Moshe prophet. Moshe got the laws, and that is it. Other prophets are there to uphold laws. But yet, Ezekiel gets laws, and not only does he get laws, but a whole bunch of them clearly contradict laws that are in the Torah. 
Okay, so this is a cause for serious alarm. And in fact, the sages considered banning the book. We talked about that there were two reasons why the sages of the Talmud considered banning this book. One is the unbelievably overt revelation. That's what Barry was talking about before. And I think several people over the, over the last three weeks have expressed some discomfort. These unbelievable visionary experiences, God's emotions. God is really there, much more than in any other book. And it was a little scary to the sages. Do you really want to leave that in the book? And then people might actually read it. Right? That was danger number one. Danger number two is, hey, he's getting laws. And not only is he getting prophetically revealed laws, but they're different from those in the Torah. So there are two approaches taken by the sages here in source number eight. Thus says the Lord God, in the first month and the first day of the month, you shall take a young bullock without blemish, and you shall offer it as a sin offering in the sanctuary. A sin offering? But surely it is a burnt offering. In other words, the law, this, in other words, without getting into the technicalities, this contradicts the law in the Torah. What type of offering we would expect? Rabbi Yochanan said, this passage will be interpreted by Elijah in the future. Meaning, I'm Rabbi Yochanan. I'm one of the greatest rabbis ever. I have no idea how to make this one up. I give up. When Mashiach comes, he'll explain how this works. All right? He just gives up and says it very, very candidly. So I have no idea what to do. And this goes on throughout the whole page of the Talmud, one after the other. The other approach is Rabbi Ashi said, it refers to the special consecration offering to be offered in the time of Ezra, just as it was offered in the time of Moses. Meaning, this is not permanent legislation. This was a one-time event. When you dedicate the temple, do this special one-time ceremony. That is okay for a prophet to get because it's a one-time thing. It's not permanent legislation. According to Rabbi Yochanan, Ezekiel is getting permanent legislation here that contradicts the Torah. Nobody's allowed to contradict the Torah. According to Rabbi Ashi, the second approach, Rabbi Ashi says, no, it's temporary. All the laws that you see here are temporary rulings for that one moment in history, but that's it. Rabbi Yudah said in the name of Rav, we already saw this passage at the beginning, that man is to remembered for good and Hanina ben Chizkiah is his name. For were it not for him, the book of Ezekiel would have been suppressed, since its sayings contradicted the words of the Torah. Because it does, <laughs> lots of times. What did he do? He took up with him 300 barrels of oil and remained there in the upper chamber until he had explained away everything. Meaning he literally, our expression too, he burned the midnight oil and stayed up all night until he fixed everything which is great, good for him, and I'm very happy that he did what he did. But none of us know what his resolutions were, and honestly, I cannot, not, not just that I can't, none of our commentators could even remotely guess what he did to make these contradictions go away, because there are contradictions. There are lots of contradictions. The classic approach that you'll find in medieval commentary, by the way, is not, let's see how we can reconcile Ezekiel with the Torah, because you just can't. Whatever Hanina ben Chizkiah did, bless him, it was brilliant, beyond brilliant, but none of our commentators could figure it out. So they come up with an alternate solution. What they do, they just make lists of the laws, and they see where the discrepancies are, and they notice one thing. 100% of the time when Ezekiel has a law that's different from the Torah, it's more stringent than the Torah. Stringent. In other words, he never permits that which was prohibited, but he prohibits things that used to be permitted. So our commentators refer to this as Kiddushah Hamura, that in the mess- a more, a more elevated level of holiness, that in the Messianic era, we'll be able to handle a little more Mahadrian. But until then, let's follow the letter of the law. There's no room for what we call Humrot, you know, unnecessary stringencies. So that's how they deal with Ezekiel. 
And that's probably true. I, I, on the level of Pshat, that's probably what's going on over here. But you have to understand how much the sages were bothered by this. To give you a, it's, it's so trivial. But you understand that the sages were very bothered by Ezekiel. Without looking at the point where they said they almost banished the book. Look at source number nine. You know that in the Hebrew alphabet, at least the one that we use in the Kitab Ashuri, there are five letters where there's a, the letter, you write the letter one way in the beginning or the middle of the word. And then if it's the last letter of the word, then it has a final form. Okay, you just need to know that for this point. There's five letters in the alphabet like that, and that's what they're talking about in this passage. Rabbi Yirmiya, or you might say, also say, Rabbi Chiyabar Abba also said, the alternative forms of the letters, Mem, Nun, Tzadi, Pei, and Kuf, and Kaf, excuse me, were prescribed by the watchmen, the prophets. Okay, in other words, who made that up? <laughs> who decided that there would be five letters that have a final form at the end of the, the word, and then a regular form everywhere else. They said the prophets made that up. So Talmud says, no, that can't be. Prophets could never have made up final form of letters. Do you really think so? Is it not written, these are the commandments? Now, in the Torah, all it means is these are the commandments. So it's a closing verse in the book of Vayikra and Leviticus. But the way the Talmud is reading it is, these are the commandments. Right? That's how the Talmud reads this verse. Meaning, these are the commandments, and there are none others ever. Right? Which implies that no prophet is at liberty to introduce anything new. So here is the Talmud is fussing over final forms of a letter, which is really not a halachic big deal in the overall scheme of things. Right? But their point is well taken. What they're trying to say is that prophets are not allowed to be original at all through prophecy. Right? So how could Ezekiel come along and have all these laws? And these are not these are not true, they're not memso feats. These are big time laws that change the game. So that's what the sages were bothered by. And again, our commentator's best answer, which is probably correct, is that in the messianic era, it will be slightly more it will be stricter in certain areas of law. Okay, but now let's connect all the dots. What we've been trying to do in all three of these shiurim is to try to nail. What makes this prophet different from all the other prophets? So we've already talked about the priest, the priest prophet thing. We've talked about the, you know, the overt divine revelation that emerges from that. There's one other thing that's happening here, and I'll just start saying all the things that distinguish the book, and you're all going to connect the dots. I won't have to say any more. Okay. Not only is Ezekiel getting laws like no other prophet but Moshe, but you may recall from source number, I didn't fuss about it when we looked at it because we were looking at a different point, but if you go back to source number six... Where is he when he's getting these laws? In verse 2, he brought me in visions of God to the land of Israel, and he set me down on a very high mountain, receiving laws while standing on a mountain. Okay. What is his vision of? He's getting a detailed vision of the future temple. There's only one other person who got a detailed vision of what a temple or a sanctuary should look like. That's also Moshe, right? Moshe, got. he didn't just get... This is how you do it. He, God showed him things. And he even says, you tell B'Tzalel to make the menorah just like I showed you on the mountain. He had a visionary experience that accompanied the laws that went with it. And Ezekiel's job in the course of these laws is to preside over the temple dedication ceremony exactly like Moshe did. You even have these fun, the overt revelation. I mean, he's getting prophecy that made the sages so scared because we all know the rule. We know that Moshe's prophet, prophecy is unique. He's the only one who got absolutely crystal clear revelation. You read the book of Ezekiel, it sounds like somebody else got it too. So the way the sages handle that is they say, Moshe, when he saw God, he looked through one clear lens. 
Ezekiel looked through nine dirty lenses. And they have to make this point because they realize that if we're reading this book, it sounds like, wait a minute, the whole point is that we have another Moshe here who sees God like only Moshe did, who's getting laws like only Moshe did. Fun bonus. Ezekiel, you may recall from the first week, was considered mute for a while. There's only one other person who had some speaking difficulties in his career, and you you have the the little things, but they matter also. Right? What's happening here is God is giving the Torah to Ezekiel. This is like the new revelation of the Torah. By the way, cool move, just so you understand how the Midrash reads verses. So it's a klutz kasha, right? You have to distinguish Moshe and Ezekiel, lest you think that Ezekiel's level of prophecy was equal to that of Moshe. So they say, okay, Moshe saw through one clear one, and Ezekiel saw through nine. The klutz question is, well, why did the sages choose the number nine? Why didn't they say he went, looked through twelve? or 10, or 7, or whatever. Why did they come up with the number 9? That's the klutz question, right? If, if it said 12, I would have asked the same thing. Right? It's a silly question, but it's not silly. I'm going to show you how they, why it had to be 9, so that you can actually appreciate why the sages, how the sages use the verse. It's in our source sheets. When God shows up in the climactic verses in source 7, here again you need to look at the Hebrew. The Midrash has a rule. That when they always take a minimalist approach. If there's a singular word, that means one. And if there's a plural and it doesn't give a number, what does that mean in halacha? If there's a plural, how do the sages interpret that number? What number would it be if there's a plural? Seven. The answer is two. Because they're minimalists, right? In other words, you and I would say, by the way, if there's a plural word, we'd say at least two. Right? That's what we would do. If we see a plural and there's no number there, you and I as Pashtanim would say, okay, something plural is more than one, but I, I can't tell you any more than that. But the sages always took a minimalist reading, and this applies in halakha. If, if it says you need witnesses, so it means two. Even if no number is given, it's, o- it's always going to be the smallest number that it could be. That's how the sages read verses. And they don't just do that in halakha, they do that with literary analysis also. So if you look at Pasuk Gimel, here you need to look at the Hebrew, because it doesn't work in the English at all. And you need to look for the root, Reish Aleph He. What's Reish Aleph He? To see, or vision. Okay, so let's count them together. Uchmar E, okay, so that's one, right? Hamar E, okay, that's two. Asher Ra'iti, three, right? Kamar E, four, like the vision. Asher Ra'iti, Bivoi Lishachet Et Ha'ir, Umar Ot, no, 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 that's two, that's plural, right? So that's seven, right? See, that's why you got to know that rule. Kamar e, eight, asher ra'iti, nine. That's why it's nine, right? They don't just make these numbers up. What they're doing is, here's Ezekiel seeing God's presence coming back and occupying the temple. That's the most overt revelation you're ever going to hope to see. And so the sages are alarmed. They might think he's seeing God the way that Moshe sees God. So they count up these... C's, right? They, you know, S-E-E, that kind of C. They count up the C's and you get to the number nine. So they say, oh, you see, Ezekiel looks through nine lenses. He didn't get it as overt as Moshe. That's where they're getting all of this from. But it's very clear that Ezekiel is not just a prophet who's giving the people hope in the exile. He is a prophet who's re-getting the Torah, who's seeing God in the most overt way possible since Moshe. 
who is functioning in every way like Moshe, and he's doing this all in the exile, which of course is where Moshe got the Torah, by the way. Right? Moshe also got the Torah outside of the land of Israel. And so I'm not making any of these things up. In the 12th century, Rabbi Eliezer of Belgian Sea already pointed this out. He nailed it. He nailed it in the 12th century, and, and and I think that's really the point of the book. Ezekiel did not explain from what date he was counting 30 years. You may recall from week one that it just says at the first verse, in the 30th year, and nobody has any clue, 30th year of what. So we spent a lot of time back in week one playing around with the thesis that it refers to his age, and this has to do with his priestly tenure as a prophet. But Rabbi Eliezer of Belgency plays with the more predominant view that you'll find in our commentators, that it refers 30 years back to Josiah's Reformation, when they found a Torah scroll, and there was a huge religious revival. Even though the Targum is straight and points to the time when Chilkiah the priest found the Torah scroll in 622 BCE, this is not a common way for verses to speak. That is certainly true. We don't normally date prophecies to events. Admittedly, there is no alternative even though we do not understand why he would count in this manner. So he just throws his arms up in the air and says, look, it is 30 years back to the Reformation, but why, why in the world would you do that? Well, I have nothing better to say, so it must be that. But then he gives you his theory. However, it appears in light of the entire book that we can offer a reason. You will not find a prophet exhorting his generation about Torah and the commandments except for Ezekiel. Most of his words echo the style of the Torah. And he repeated nearly the entire Torah to them, as though he were giving the Torah to them anew. Therefore, he counted the date from the time of the scroll of the Torah was found, since the essence of his book was dependent on it. That's it. Fabulous. Go, Rabbi Eliezer. So, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I'm so glad we have his manuscripts and now they're published. They're back, they're back in play for us in the 21st century. For many centuries, commentators did not have access to his work. And so they lost a real gem in the history of our interpretation. Again, he was from 12th century, northern France. But Eliezer and Belgian Sea says that's the whole point of the book, that we're getting here a redo of the Torah. So it's more than hope, which it's worth it, Diana, just for the hope part, but it, 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 it's actually the re-giving of the Torah to the people of Israel, letting them know, of course, that the, even though there's an exile, the Torah is eternal. Right? That's, that's what Ezekiel is trying to drive home very loud and clear. So to summarize the book of Ezekiel, what we've done in the last three weeks, we talked about it with Jeremiah also. These two prophets lived at a time when the people of Israel genuinely believed the God-Israel relationship is over. The destruction of the temple and the exile meant that's, that's the end of the Jewish people as we know it. We're going to assimilate, become Babylonians. The, covenant, the whole covenant is done. Ezekiel's claim to fame or his characteristic is that he's a prophet priest. Even though he's a priest in exile, he serves as a priest in a small temple. It's not a building temple. It's that God reveals himself to Ezekiel. And that creates this mikdash me'at terminology that, that, that God uses in chapter 11. Because he's a priest, that means he has no personality because he's in service. And this allows God's personality to shine through like in no other book and by far which makes the book very frightening in certain ways, but it also makes it very vivid. Although he does say that the people of Israel should take personal responsibility for their actions and repent, he's not counting on that at all. The expectation of the book is that they will not repent, and God will have to redeem us because it's all about God, and God is in exile, and God needs to bring us back. This is the story of God suffering, God being in exile, mourning, and finally returning. And then Ezekiel becomes the... New Moshe, 
actually receiving the Torah anew and giving it to the people of Israel, letting them know that, in fact, everything is going to be restored. The God-Israel-Torah relationship are, are complete. And the only thing that's missing in this book is that the book ends in the visionary experience. Right? What we would like to have seen, or what we still would like to see, is for that to work out down here, too. And there's this perfected vision that he sees up there. Well, the whole point is to realize it in this world. It's not enough to have the, the visionary experience. This book ends in a visionary experience because, of course, it was not fulfilled then. So the sages were terrified of this book because they like to view Tanakh. Every now and then I mention this. It's just such an important methodological point. If you ask any Pashtun, somebody's looking for the plain sense of the text, what I'm holding here is a library. Right? All in one hand. That's 24 different books, right? And each book has its own characteristics and literary style and structure, and you've got to understand each book on its own terms and then branch out to see how it interfaces with other books. The sages saw this as one big book with a lot of hyperlinks. And that's how they read it, actually. They read it differently from the way later commentators read it, and that has a huge impact on how you understand why they're so nervous about certain books. They get very uncomfortable when a certain book doesn't match all the other ones. And they try very hard to reconcile it to the other ones. So, bless this Hanin Naben Chizkiah who stayed up all night and did that, but the reality is nobody else could for the life of them figure out how we could do it because it doesn't match. Right? That's the whole point. But Chazal considered, our sages considered banishing the book from Tanakh because it's so different. It breaks the rules. We're not supposed to be able to see God so explicitly. We're not supposed to feel God's emotions in our face. We're not supposed to have another prophet getting laws. The things that scared our sages are rightly different from any other book, and by far, there's nothing like this anywhere else. But you can appreciate why this overt revelation in the exile, and Ezekiel stifling his own personality, so God's personality is the star of the show, and that he's getting the Torah in the exile, that's what saved the Jewish people. And I'm, I'm, I'm rather pleased that not only is the Kaddish modeled after this, but I'm happy that the Hatikvah is modeled after this, right? I like that derives from this same book. That the hope that Ezekiel was able to give to the people of Israel was like nobody else's hope. And thank God, here we are to, to talk about it. I'll tell you that I'm already getting very sad because next week is our last one for a long time. So today I was feeling very miserable about this as I was gearing up for tonight because you know, I've really been enjoying this. Like, oh man, it's just the book of Jonah and then, then we're off until whatever, November. So... To cheer myself up, I immediately stopped what I was doing on Ezekiel and emailed Rabbi Steinmetz and Weinstock and said, hey, can we talk about dates for next year? And so, I, so I'm getting them on the calendar. So at least I know that they're, they're there. And I started working around with my notes of the, of the, of the next series. So we have one more, one more session for this, for this round, and that will be the book of Yonah. I thought that would be a fun, climactic way to do it. And anyway, if we started in November, we couldn't get it in before the holidays. I figured let's just do it now. It'll be a nice, it'll be a nice self-contained. How do we follow up? Oh, the, come November, we're going to do this again. It's going to be a whole, it's a two-year course. There's more prophets. Oh, there's more prophets, and then we have the whole, what we call the Ketuvim, the so-called holy writings. You know, we have four more weeks, four more sessions on prophets come November, and then it's going to be what we call the Ketuvim. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, the Megillah, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles. One more year for the survey. And then who knows what happens after that. But in the meantime, one year, one year at a time, I, I, I can, I always scheme grand, but for the calendar, it's good to have one year at a time. So on that happy note, have a wonderful week.